Hello and welcome to yet another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. Ghana is a West African country rich in resources. It was formerly known as the Gold Coast and it's currently Africa's biggest producer of gold but it's perhaps most famous for being one of the world's biggest producers of cocoa beans. However, unfortunately, like many African countries, the people have not always benefited from these resources. Now, my guest for this episode is Desmond, who grew up in a rural area of Ghana, and though he had access to education, facilities, as you will hear, left a lot to be desired. But despite this, Desmond became the first from his school to go to university and this path would eventually lead to him doing a PhD in Australia and to his current position as a lecturer in management at the University of Tasmania. In this episode we discuss life and community in Ghana including their unique way of celebrating funerals and I use the word celebrate purposely and some of the challenges for our Ghanaian trying to adjust to some of the major social differences in Australia. Originally from Ghana, mm-hmm. I was brought up from the northern part of Ghana, uh, northern uh, Upper East region to be specific. And I think I did my basic education in the Upper East and I relocated to the middle belt of the country, which is Brown Half region, to do my higher education. Uh, after my higher education, completing my first degree, I got a job offer. Uh, in the same university as a teaching assistant and after which uh, I was then um, retained as a tutor and I did further studies in the Asante region, Kenya uh, USD to be precise, uh, after which I returned back to um, Hafo to continue with my, my work. And then in 2014, I relocated to Australia after getting a scholarship to pursue a PhD in Curtin uh, University. Living in kind of um, countryside, um, as Australia would call it, in, in a rural area, having limited access to um, opportunities in terms of modern facilities. Primary school was quite okay because we, we had um, quite a number of um, teachers. But then in moving to secondary school where I actually attended a day school, we didn't have electricity, um, even a place to sleep was very difficult. I remember we were sleeping uh, on the floor because we didn't have beds, we didn't have dining hall, there was no, so you have to feed yourself. And we had to use lantern um, as um, a mode of, electricity to um, study. So it was quite difficult going mm. through that process. And I remember uh, it got a point, you, you, you have very few teachers and even in some subjects, we didn't even have um, um, teachers at the time. So we had to contribute money as students to then kind of get uh, uh, somebody to come and teach us um, some aspects of um, some subjects uh, to be able to kind of um, catch up with our colleagues before um, we write our final exams. And I think I was fortunate because um, I think in the history of the school, I was the first um, candidate to actually pass all my subjects okay. to get into the university from that um, particular secondary school. It was 
uh, a happy moment for me, uh, being the first candidate to do so, and also looking at the opportunities that um, one will have in terms of getting access to uh, furthering your education at the time. Currently, we have almost 100 private universities. Okay. But then if you want to count the number of public universities, you'll be looking at less than 15. So uh, at the time, it was very difficult to really get access to public university because of the number of students coming out of secondary school and also looking at the limited space available in those schools. So I ended up attending a private university, which the fees were very expensive because we're paying about um, $2,000 a year at a time. Uh, and you can imagine having to um, get your parents to be able to raise that money from countryside was really very um, difficult and very challenging. Mm. But then at least I was able to get that opportunity. A lot of my colleagues could not afford because if you don't have access to um, resources, you, you can't possibly be able to attend a private university uh, in Ghana. And so what did, your, what did your family do? What did they live from? Um, my mom is um, a petty trader. Uh, she's into small business in terms of selling provisions. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a farmer. So uh, it was through that uh, small business activities that um, they were able to raise that money to get me into um, university. And did you come from a big family? Yes, not really big. I think um, um, we are six in number. I'm the first born of my parents. And I have three sisters and and two other um, uh, guys. So having kind of a sizable family with limited resources, but having to make sure that um, we all attend um, school was really challenging. But then they were still able to do something to be able to help um, and push my education. And as the, the, the firstborn, so to speak, uh, does that mean that you had uh, a bit of a burden of responsibility? Sure. Yeah. In, in, in our part of the world, mostly the firstborn um, takes up family responsibility. So you do see that. Um, and it's one of the key challenges that you have very few middle-income earners from Africa because of dependency ratio. So it is now your responsibility to take care of your siblings and to take care of your parents as they grow old and they are not able to actively engage in, in work. So I now have to take that responsibility um, for my parents and, and for my, my, my kids, brothers and, and sisters. So it's quite challenging and very, but then it's part of the culture and environment that you need to also be able to give back to your family for the support they they gave you growing up. So by the sounds of it, um, Ghana, or at least the area you lived in, was very much a a bit of a collective mentality. So yeah, there's that kind of system where you just don't have to look within your parents and your siblings, but also the extended family, your uncles, children, um, sometimes you might even look beyond just the extended family, but even the wider community, you have people calling you, um, they need help, and um, sometimes you, you are compelled to do so because you see such people as part of your family, not mm-hmm. just your, 
blood relations, but because you are all coming from the same community, you see them as a brother or a sister. So in most cases, you do see um, a lot of the time we, we, we refer to people from our community as our brothers, our sisters. Sometimes we are not even related by yeah. blood, but that is how we, we, we see ourselves. So you call the person your brother, your sister. And what was the environment like where you grew up? Was it a, a village or a town? Yes, it, it was a small um, village, but then we had the opportunity to get electricity uh, very early uh, in the 90s, also depending on the, the location of the, um, the village. Uh, you need to be able to pass through my village to other uh, major towns. So there was no way you could get an electricity to major towns without mm. uh, connecting electricity to those villages. So we had that opportunity to get electricity uh, at a very early, in the early stages of Ghana's um, development. And also we had um, portable water, um, we had good roads and at the time. But now you do see um, a lot of challenges in terms of the issue of um, roads, but um, to some extent, we, we still have very good roads to my village, but to other um, communities, it's still very challenging um, to be able to get those kind of facilities. So I was fortunate um, to come from a town where we still have those kind of basic uh, facilities. Strongest memory from childhood, I think, mostly is the that community relations, um, where you, you you have that social interactions with your friends, with your family, uh, which probably it's not very common, especially in developed countries. So we usually we call it um, social life because we used to eat together from one bowl. So I think I remember uh, where I think every evening we have to go to about three, four homes um, to eat okay. with my friends. So we go to their house to eat. And then after eating from their house, we go to the next person. So all the five of us will have to go and eat from um, each of us our homes. And that was really very um, interesting and, and also then helped to build that kind of social cohesion and, and friendship because having to eat from the same bowl, having to share things um, with your colleagues. Sometimes you can even walk to your friend's house to eat without his presence. So far as um, okay. there's food in the house, you, you have access to that without necessarily having to wait for your friend to even come home. So these are things that I really um, will always... Uh, I remember, and it was so much fun living in, in such kind of environment and now having to live in a different environment where mm. those kind of activities are very limited in terms of yeah. that. I was going to ask whether that was something that maybe you, you missed about living here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that I, I miss. And even growing up, even um, you, you have um, friends that after work, you, you catch up every evening before going home. But then that kind of um, experience, you, you probably wouldn't be able to have that because you call a friend here, oh, let's catch up for some beer. And then he's like, oh, I'm going for work. 
or I have to go and sleep because I have a morning shift. But then back in Ghana, we don't have uh, that kind of work system. So it's quite a bit flexible. So you mostly will meet your colleagues after work before going home, which is kind of a regular um, activity that we, we, we do almost every day throughout the week, which probably you can't possibly do in, in, in Australia. When you were uh, at school, by the sound of it, it was quite it was quite a challenging time. By the sounds of it, did you sort of have any kind of ambition or or plan uh, about what you would do once you finished? Um, that's a very interesting question. Because of the kind of environment we're coming from, it's, it was very difficult to actually know what you really want to do uh, mm-hmm. when you grow up. So I didn't really have any in mind uh, from uh, primary school to senior high school all I was thinking is to be able to pass my exams because we believe that if you pass your exams you can be able to get into the university uh, but then it was until I got to the university that I then uh, you know started thinking about oh I'll probably want to be a lecturer uh, when I complete my university um, education in the future and, and a consultant. I think, so these were the two things, you know, uh, in my mind. But then at the basic level, I would never had the opportunity to really think about what I want to be uh, because it's it's very, it's not an environment that really um, creates that opportunity for you to actually know what um, your talents are mm-hmm. and, and what you really think you can be able to um, be able to do in, in such space. So until you get a certain level before you then begin to have that kind of thinking. Yeah. And I only got that um, after my, uh, during my university um, first degree. And then I said, oh, I probably would, it would be good to be a lecturer or a consultant, uh, work with an NGO. And so when I finished my first degree, I was actually, I think, um, one of the registrar. Uh, of the um, school and actually uh, approached me and said, oh, don't you want to be a teaching assistant uh, as part of your national service? And I was like, no, probably didn't want to go into um, that kind of space. I was thinking maybe you go to a secondary school and teach. But then she convinced me that, oh, it was a good opportunity um, to be able to uh, uh, achieve my uh, career um, objective. So I was like, oh, so I took up the opportunity to um, serve as a teaching assistant as part of my national service. So fortunately for me, after the national service, the university retained me as a tutor, and then I proceeded to do my master's. I came back and I got promoted to assistant lecturer, and then uh, I left to then pursue my PhD, and, and here I am. Uh, working uh, still within the university environment and uh, I enjoy every bit of what what put the idea in your head to be an elect- lecturer was there anything in particular or some influence that prompted that I didn't want to be a teacher at the basic level because you saw that a lot of them were not really they were not really making very um, good progress mm-hmm. so I decided that if it is to be a a high school teacher or a primary school teacher, then I probably wouldn't want to be a teacher. 
but then at a lecturer at a university, at least um, there's an opportunity. You see uh, that opportunity to be able to develop yourself um, up to the higher level. Um, at least you'll be able to do a PhD at that level. But then um, during my first degree studies, we used to have groups um, studies. And in most instances, um, my friends would easily um, ask me to come and, and lead the group. The most difficult subjects, they rather would push those subjects for me to lead. Mm -hmm. And that then requires that I have to go and do my private studies before I come to um, be able to lead the, the group. And because you wouldn't want to go there and disgrace yourself. Mm -hmm. So I will have to then go and sit somewhere privately, study, and then come and then lead a group. So after that, uh, your colleagues will say, oh, oh, I think after you have explained these concepts, I think I now get it even much more clearer than the lecturer. So it was through that uh, process, I got to realize that, oh, then I can possibly be a teacher. Uh, if I can be able to explain things to my colleagues and they even understand better than the lecturer, uh, then I think I, I should be able to uh, you know, be a teacher and be able to share knowledge uh, with other people. And that was how I developed the interest in becoming mm. a lecturer. And you mentioned that your father was uh, a farmer. What, what kind of farming, like what kind of crops did he have? It was mainly granules and then uh, maize. And considering the nature of the weather in the north, it's very difficult to have um, rain consistently for four good months. So mm -hmm. you do see that um, it, it limits you to the kind of crops that you have to um, grow because you are looking at having less rain consistently for more than three months. So maize is usually very easier because maize will only need 90 days, three months. Mm -hmm. So it's quite good for that particular um, um, weather. And then also with granite, because of the nature of the soil, it's actually good for granite than and other crops. So our part of the, the north, um, we are also fortunate to have an irrigation um, that connects the um, to my village. So um, the cultivation of um, tomatoes was actually very um, common in, in, in the early 90s. Uh, but then um, in recent times, that has not been fruitful because of um, challenges with um, the expansion and the renovation of uh, the, that particular uh, tunnel irrigation dam. So we do have limited access to um, that irrigation compared to the early 90s. And you, you mentioned funerals, which just reminded me of something I'd uh, seen about Ghana, is that you have, I've seen pictures of pretty amazing funerals, which are very different to what we're used to here. Yeah, I think um, funerals are really very, it, it's, it's recognised as um, one of the priority activities. Uh, where we believe that um, the person needs to be given a befitting celebration after death. Uh, and we believe that um, that probably will create uh, some um, opportunity for the person to join 
um, his or her maker. So we do spend a lot of resources in, 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 in celebrating funerals. So I usually call it celebrating funerals mm. because it's not mourning. Uh, it's more of a, a, a celebration because you do see a lot of uh, activities like dancing. It's more of kind of an opportunity for people to uh, meet and also um, be able to um, share with each other some of the support that they have for uh, the person uh, who probably is responsible for organizing um, the funeral. And it is expected that as you attend uh, funerals, when you also have a funeral in your home, um, you would likely have family members, friends, and the community. And in most instances, you don't even need to invite people. They, they, they come to sympathize with you because they are part of that community. So it's not like you are giving an invitation to attend this um, funeral. Only few people may be invited, but the community uh, will usually be present uh, without any invitation because they are coming to um, support you because you've lost a loved one and they believe that when they also um, um, lose a loved one, um, you will um, be present. So kind of an opportunity to support each other during mm. the period of difficulty in, in, in your life. It's very interesting because it's such a different way of, or a different attitude towards uh, death. And um, as you say, more of a celebration than a mourning, which I think maybe is a healthier way to um, deal with a, a kind of uh, loss. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a healthy way because then it takes away the mental stress that these families or individuals uh, will go through. So I think um, it, it helps to be able to heal um, people who have family members, losing their family members. And because you have so many people um, coming um, to show solidarity, support, and that then help to be able to moderate your the stress that you probably will have to go through if um, you have to go through this alone. But now here is the case, you have so many, even an entire community, depending on your social status. Um, if you are a very popular person in the community, you would likely have the entire community in your home um, uh, supporting you, uh, showing solidarity during such uh, uh, difficult moments. So I think um, it's one of the things I really like about um, Africa mm -hmm. because it's when you, you are in difficulty, you have people coming to support you yeah. without you necessarily reaching out to them. And they also expect that when they are also in difficulty, you reach out to them without necessarily uh, waiting for somebody to request for assistance, which is really very supportive. And that um, is what I believe it's more of kind of an environment that is uh, supportive and, and, and allow uh, people to um, help each other. Our system, especially in Ghana, is structured in such a way that every family you have the family head. Mm -hmm. So most decisions that impact on the entire family, you do see that um, there is that level of consultation with the family head. So you probably have to get the family head involved and he will then call other family members to come together 
to decide on what we need to do. And, and mostly, especially during funerals, uh, that is one of the, or maybe marriage ceremonies or other activities that will involve the entire family. You have that kind of um, collective decision making, which is really good. But if it's about your own personal life, uh, mostly you would want to um, maybe limit um, the uh, level of consultation because sometimes you might think that maybe they, they don't really understand your own uh, perspective. So you probably would want to, uh, but most instances you still want once in a while, want to hear from um, elderly people about their uh, view of some of the decisions that you want to take as a, a family member. In our environment, marriage is not the individuals involved. Mm -hmm. It is the families involved. And that is where sometimes you, you might not even be involved directly uh, because it's something that your parents, your other family members will have to do on your behalf. Um, so even if I'm going to get married, I don't need to even go with them. It is rather the family members who will have to okay. go through the processes. Uh, I remember when I was getting married um, to my wife, I was in Australia. Oh, really? <laughs> when the, the traditional processes were being carried out by my dad and my other family members. So until I got home and then I had to then um, go with them just to be able to let the family members know that um, I'm the person getting married to their daughter. But then in terms of the uh, traditional rights, uh, most of the time you, you don't even need to be involved. It is rather your family members who are supposed to take that responsibility. Okay. So it's quite very interesting where you have to... <laughs> The family members will have to do that on your behalf. What are the things that the parents are looking for, I guess, to as, or does it vary from family to family? Yeah, it varies from family to family. And, and sometimes um, I usually term some of them um, stereotyping, you okay. know, because of the, um, the, the level of diversity. So you do see... Um, some parents try to draw from historical experiences. Okay. And sometimes they stereotype or prejudice about certain communities. Um, they believe that, oh, w women of, or men from these communities um, they, they exhibit certain kind of personality traits, which may or may not necessarily be true. Sure. But these kind of stereotyping and prejudice uh, sometimes can impact on um, decisions of your parents to kind of support or not support your decision to marry from a particular um, tribe. So, but then with the level of education, um, you do see that this level of interference is kind of moderating as compared to uh, in, in 30 years, 20 years ago. And it was also very interesting that... Um, um, because I have witnessed certain marriages where you, you, you can meet a lady in the marketplace and decide to marry the person without her knowledge. But then at the end of the day, that marriage works. Right. So surprising. But in, in 
in today's world, you definitely <laughs> cannot do that. <laughs> and that probably won't work. But in the olden days, we have instances where uh, you can even somebody, your, your family can even marry for you. Like yeah. in my case, uh, I might be in Australia and my parents can decide to marry a woman for me. In those days. Tell me what brought you to Tasmania in the first place and what are you doing here currently? I think um, mostly I will say it's a job. I finished my PhD in Kerti University in Western Australia. So after my graduation, I got a job offer with the University of Tasmania as a lecturer. So I decided to relocate to um, Tasmania. And tell me a bit about uh, what, what is the job? Like what do you do? Um, I'm a lecturer um, in management. Um, I teach um, at the postgraduate and, and undergraduate level. Um, I teach uh, foundations of management and um, applied human resource management at the undergraduate level. And I do some research as well. Uh, mostly my research is into uh, human resource management in uh, multinational organizations in developing countries. And what were your first impressions actually? Uh, my first impression coming to Tasmania uh, was the difficulty in getting accommodation. Uh, it took me quite a number of weeks uh, where I had to live in an apartment which was quite expensive. I was paying about $180 a night and it was really difficult to get accommodation. I actually inspected about 15 houses mm. and I never got a place. So. I decided to then use Facebook and I was fortunate to contact um, one landlord who then offered me a one unit apartment in Newtown. So my first experience, especially with housing was really very terrible. Mm. Having to go to inspection and we were about 60 people, yeah. in one house. So that was my, I think, initial experience. It was because of um, the nature of the city as well and being new in town. Uh, there were instances where you, you were booked to visit, uh, to inspect a house and within 30 minutes to time, uh, they sent you an email and said, oh, there was no need for you to come and inspect the place. It has already been mm. uh, allocated to somebody else. And I'm like, wow. So it was later on, you know, I tried to find out why I had, because I had about um, three or four experiences with that. And somebody was telling me, oh, mostly it's about, you know, getting to know uh, a lot of the agents and they can easily be able to get you in contact with the landlord. So I was a bit surprised. Were there any other things, at least sort of especially at the beginning, that were um, maybe a challenge to adapt to? Um, I think not really. Apart from the accommodation, I was very comfortable with the environment because a uh, uh, very small city, mm -hmm. uh, you can easily 
and get into the city in, in, in less than 15 minutes. So I was very excited, especially where I, I was living uh, in New Town. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can even decide to walk yeah. to the city. So uh, it was really exciting for me. And also so many uh, tourist sites that you can um, easily visit. And these are things that you probably would have to spend 40 minutes, 50 minutes if you are living in, 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 in mainland to be able to get into these interesting sites. So I really enjoyed my initial experience in Tasmania, apart from just the difficulty in actually getting housing. It was really a very great experience and I've enjoyed my stay in. Sometimes my colleagues will tell me, oh, why not move to mainland? I really find it difficult mm -hmm. to make that decision to move to mainland because I really enjoy the this place mm -hmm. um, because um, the, the environment is so natural uh, and you have the opportunity to be able to move around you know freely mm -hmm. and it is also very good especially for younger uh, uh, families yeah. Because you, you have the opportunity to be able to um, be very close with your kids, get them to um, parks very easy yeah. uh, compared to mainland where there's so much you know traffic where you probably will have to maybe uh, travel maybe 20 minutes, 30, 40 minutes before you get to a park. Yeah. But in Tasmania, you're probably looking at six, seven minutes uh, you have a park, sometimes less than that. And has it been easy to sort of build social connections to to sort of make networks that kind of thing uh yeah in terms of social connections um um it's not that easy but mostly with colleague immigrants uh, it is much easier mm -hmm. to start that social connection with immigrants because the they are also coming from uh, uh, different environments and they are also looking to build social network and, and that social uh, cohesion in, 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 in the community. So I will usually advise people um, as an immigrant, your starting point is uh, other immigrants before you then get into um, the uh, main uh, community. Um, but one interesting thing I've noticed about uh, Tasmania is the older people mm -hmm. are more sociable than the younger ones. And, and mm -hmm. it's something that I have observed over, over periods. Yeah, okay. So you do see that it is much easier to interact with elderly people in Tasmania compared to the younger ones. Talking about those who originally, um, uh, who are originally from Tasmania, uh, mostly the, uh, the elderly people are more uh, sociable and mm -hmm. more approachable yeah. and want to have that connection, that engagement with immigrants than the younger ones, which is quite strange. Because I was thinking should be the other way around. The younger population should rather be more uh, sociable and more uh, uh, open to that engagement or connection with immigrants. In terms of cultural differences, what would you say would be the biggest differences between Australia and Ghana, or the biggest things you've noticed? Um, I think the biggest differences um, will generally be that 
in Australia, a lot of the things uh, are more individualistic in mm -hmm. nature. The way people um, live their lives is more kind of individualistic. But in, in Ghana, we, we still um, build on that collectivist uh, orientation where you think that um, the collective interest is uh, paramount to individual interest. But you do see that in Australia, individual uh, uh, interest is more paramount and people would want to um, have that orientation in, in, in this kind of environment. So you see that. And then secondly, you look at the family structure. Mm -hmm. um, you do see that we are still strongly built around the extended family system where you still have to look at the interests of your extended family members. Uh, whilst in Australia, it is more narrow to the, the immediate family, your yeah. wife and your children, with limited uh, you know, scope for that extended uh, family responsibility. So even sometimes when you look at uh, your, your, your kids will have to leave you. Uh, in Ghana, if you are not married, you cannot leave the home. Yes, you have to stay with your parents until you are married or you have a job in a different city that requires you to you know, leave. But if you are all living in the same city, you are working in the same city, um, there is no motivation to leave your parents because uh, if you even relocate, when they grow old, you will still want to come back and take care of them. Mm. So then what would be the point in moving out of the house, which is not something that is very um, common in, in Australia. You do see that after 18, yeah, 19 yeah. years, um, these kids will. So sometimes that is one of my biggest concern in, in, in this kind of um, environment. I, I just, uh, I, I feel that insecurity uh, of losing sight of my children when they turn 18. Uh, so it means I'll probably be living alone without my kids around. But if I was in Ghana, that level of insecurity won't be something that I would think about. But here, I, I think about it all the time. Mm. That within some few years, my children will leave the house and I will end up living with my wife alone, which is really something that I'm concerned about. Okay. So how old are your kids now? Uh, my first um, son is 11 years. He will be 12 in January. Mm -hmm. My second son is three years. Okay. And my little daughter is nine months. 